Hey team, welcome to the Professionally Offensive Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cabrera. This is the spot where we provide raw, unfiltered insights from some amazing guests. Stand by, you're about to be offended in all the right ways. All right team, welcome back to the podcast. We got a two for one today with Ernestine Fu and Tom Ehrlich. So great to have you on the show. Thank you for getting some time with us today. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Well, I tell you, anytime I can, I think we've only had a small handful of times where we've had two folks, two guests on the show at the same time. So not only does it become a little bit of a logistics juggling for me, so it keeps me sharp, but I actually think that the conversations always provide a really cool nuance to our show. So thank you for that. But for the audience here, let me just kind of go through who these two folks are. Um, quite the resume and quite the punch, but I think what's even more so is just their really strong care for uh, the thing that happens in the civil work and, and how we continue to help the communities that we live in and the people that, that make up those communities. But with Ernestine Fu first, venture capitalist, GP and founder of Brave Capital, and that deals with big data, security, transportation tech, all the things that are on the cutting edge. She's a, from undergrad all the way to PhD, a Stanford person, um, and has co-authored with this great gentleman here, Tom, the book Civil Work and Civic Lessons. I know there's a lot more probably in between there, Ernestine. Does that sound like a good Cliff Notes version of your background? That's perfect. And Tom, uh, a life in federal service there, especially through six presidents, was the former president of Indiana University, provost of UPenn, the dean of Stanford Law School, the first director, I thought this was kind of neat, director of International Development Cooperation Agency, if I remember saying that right, reported straight into President Carter also the co-author of this book and 14 other books uh, that you've had and a Harvard law guy. So really interesting that we get Stanford and Harvard in harmony together on the same show, which is really amazing to see, you know, that we were just joking ahead of time uh, what, what the impetus was to get to Cali. But when you go to California, you understand that the weather and the scenery are hard to beat, but did I miss anything there, Tom, anything noteworthy that I, that I might've skipped over? I'm sure I did. One wonderful wife of 66 years, three terrific children, nine grandchildren, and one recently great grandchildren. Yeah, that, you're right. That's, the, that's probably the number one bullet I probably should have kicked off with. So thanks for that, Tom. But I guess just starting off, you know, we've gotten Ernestine. I met Ernestine first and through a connection in the VC world. And we kind of got to kicking off there, finding out that, you know, she was married to his former service member as well. And so there's just a lot of connection. And then she said, well, we got to have Tom on the show. It's just, we've done a lot of really great things together. He's just an incredible human being. So let's talk about this. How did you both get introduced to each other? Like, how did that world come together? You, know, you get law, you got venture capital, you know, and you got public service, private sector investments. How does that stuff, how did that all come to be? Yeah, I can kick off with that. Um, so I was at Stanford at the time, was involved in student government, and I met the director of Stanford's Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society. So it's this research-centered focus primarily on philanthropy and civil society and also addressing societal challenges. Um, just asked the director if there were opportunities to volunteer and get involved with the center's work, and she recommended that I connect with Tom. Um, at the time, I was just starting my sophomore year in college and I didn't really know the difference between dean, professor, all the other impressive titles on a university campus. So I had no idea how big of a deal Tom was on campus because of course he was previously dean of Stanford Law School. And um, we met um, and Tom, I was just 
immediately in all of your decades of service work and dedication to making a difference in the lives of others. Like you've always put others first, and this is clear with your work in the federal government, being the first president of Legal Services Corporation, also being the first director of the International Development Cooperation Agency, and also just felt that we had this sense of civic responsibility as well. And kind of think of that as like duty of citizens to participate in our community, just contribute to the common good and um, civic responsibility can be expressed by voting, volunteering, donating to charity, helping others and whatnot, and just um, being an informed, engaged citizen. So just felt that there was an instant connection given that we had those shared values. Very cool. Tom? Just a little, same result exactly, a little different perspective because uh, having been in the government and really believe that uh, public service is a noble calling and the opportunity to work to shape public policy and make uh, uh, our community, whatever the community or country, uh, a little better uh, is, a, is a great opportunity. I wanted to write a book about uh, how young people could get involved in public service which I, by which I mean not just government service, but doing good in their communities, cleaning up parks, tutoring kids, whatever um, they can do to make that place a little better. And um, I wrote 150 or so pages uh, and uh, went to an editor and she said to me, uh, gee, Tom, you're a nice fellow and all that, but you're trying to appeal to youth and you don't have a youth voice, so you better find one. And I uh, went to the center that Ernestine just referred to. And uh, uh, in fact, I did talk to a couple of others first, and none of them was the right chemistry. And then the head of the center gave me Ernestine's resume. And I said, this is 10 pages long. She can't possibly do the work with me on a book for the next three years, uh, forgetting the most basic rule of of uh, collaboration, which is find the busiest person you possibly know to collaborate with, because that's just the right one. In any event, Ernestine uh, was there, and uh, we started uh, working together. And uh, for me, it was um, just a glorious experience, because uh, she had such a wide array of uh, young people involved in public service across the country. Uh, she had been on the cover of Forbes magazine. She had been in uh, a Rotary Club leadership uh, program and knew young people doing really creative civic work uh, throughout the country. So we were a partnership and we have fortunately been able to, to my great pleasure, stay that way for the last 11 years. Was that automatic? Was there any kind of warming up period for you two? Or was it instant? Like you saw the resume, Ernestine heard about you and you, you met each other in person and said, okay, let's do this thing. Well, for me, it was love at first sight. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think it also just goes back to um, one of the best pieces of career advice I've ever received is um, focus on finding the right people to work with rather than just chasing after logos to add to your resume. Um, so to me, that means like finding people who are not only talented, but also trustworthy, passionate, you know, dedicated to some sort of broader mission. And those are the qualities I saw when I first met Tom. And um, Tom, as you know, like I, I wasn't seeking to write a book or to collaborate 
with the Stanford Dean and um, the exact same thing happened when I first started in venture as well. Didn't seek to work out in venture capital, didn't want to work at the largest, most well-known venture fund. And um, it's something that I continuously encourage my friends and colleagues to think about as well. We did have complementary uh, talents and interests and backgrounds that really meshed very well. Uh, if there was a, a young person involved in some civic agency across the country, uh, Ernestine knew them. I knew a lot of organizations. I'd helped start uh, several organizations, uh, one of presidents and one of uh, campuses. But in each case, the focus was on service, uh, learning about public policy and the implementation of public policy. Uh, both of those are big national organizations. So I had some organizational experience there, but I didn't have the close-up and personal engagement that um, Ernestine had. And so we were able to put them together. And also, she's a uh, superb engineer. Uh, I'm kind of a fallen lawyer who's been a government official and university administrator. And so we had balance uh, there as well. How did y'all, I mean, it sounds like in addition to the connection with the book there, but it sounds like you both have a strong, you know, desire, commitment to uh, civic works and, you know, obligations and duties there. Was that something, and maybe just independently answer, what was the thing from, from when you can remember? Was this something from a young age that you always had that was always just kind of in, is that something your parents taught? Where did that love or interest in, you know, civil work and, and that commitment and being able to work back in your community, where did that come from? Um, I was just thinking, Tom, about um, when you also shared with me your story of working at the State Department and that first day coinciding with the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis and that sort of um, inspiring story um, and just being inspired by stories like that. Do you want to share that story? Uh, sure. Uh, I graduated from law school with a law clerk for a very famous judge who was 87 at the time, which seemed to me impossibly old, but here I am, 89 years old, and there it is. Uh, and that was a glorious experience in public service. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I thought I'd spend a little time in private learning what lawyers did by private practice. But it was the beginning of the Kennedy administration, and I was inspired by uh, Kennedy's notion. Uh, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Uh, and I had the great good fortune to be asked by one of my law school teachers, who has just been appointed legal advisor, that's the chief lawyer in the State Department, uh, to come be his assistant. And uh, that seemed like a chance of a lifetime to do that, which it was. Uh, as. Ernestine suggested it. I arrived in October uh, 62, the very day the Cuban Missile Crisis was announced uh, by President Kennedy. One of the key parts, uh, certainly not the only one by any means, but one was presenting a strong legal case for why what we call the quarantine was uh, consistent with the United Nations Charter even though uh, we were taking action with force behind it uh, in that uh, way. And we spent literally the next 48 hours nonstop crafting an initial version of that, 
and then the weeks and months ahead in dealing with various aspects of uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis from the vantage point of international law. And it was a thrilling experience and I had a sense that uh, this was history in the making and I was a little tiny part of it and uh, thrilled to do so. And that first uh, convinced me that spending some time and your energy and effort in uh, broadly speaking public service is uh, superbly satisfying and gratifying. That's amazing. Ernestine, like other than being inspired by stories like that, was there something that, you know, Tom talks about you already coming with a quiver full of, you know, other public service type things and connections you've had uh, even at a younger age there. What was the impetus for that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is also just we're all given these unique set of talents. And I strongly believe that part of the meaning of life is being able to use our talents to the best of our abilities to make the world a better place, to help each other, like to move humanity forward. And um, even when I think about that work from day to day on a technology company basis and supporting companies that can't have that sort of broad societal impact, how do you think about backing successful teams that can change lives around the world? Just being very fortunate to be able to work in that that sort of area. And um, honestly, it's also just being inspired by individuals like Tom, one of my colleagues at Brave Capital, for instance, Bill Kroll, he worked at the very intersection of technology and the government. He was previously deputy director of the NSA, um, shaped many of the policies and technologies that have protected American citizens, servicemen, servicewomen over the last two decades, and just being able to continue that sort of work for and um, both um, really think about promoting it and protecting and continuing that sort of work. Yeah, no, that's amazing. It's something that I will say just from my own personal experience, it's something that I saw a lot in my own family, but it wasn't something that I, it's something I'd recognize later that isn't always as a parent in other folks in the way they grow up as being a, maybe a priority or something that you lean into. You know, me watching my father as a public servant was a good example of what that looked like, but I recognized later that that isn't always the benefit that we get to see. Why do y'all see it so important, you know, a, why is public service, why is not only lending your time and talent to a world where they may not always get the best time and talent in that space? Why do y'all find it so incredibly important? What is something that maybe even as Americans, we kind of miss why so critical it is to, to be able to spend at least some time investing back in where you are? Well, uh, to quote a off-used cliche, democracy is not a spectator sport. And it's tempting for uh, young people, particularly, to think that, uh, well, what difference can I really make? You know, I, I have a vote, but God, there are millions and millions of votes. Oh, what can I do? The reality is that uh, each of us can do a lot uh, to make our community uh, better and stronger. And there's so many over the years, I have, stories I have heard from others, Ernestine's, Exhibit A, of course, but there are lots and lots of others who said, uh, there's a problem. And instead of uh, sitting in the corner, sticking my thumb in my mouth and whining about it, I'm going to try to do something about it. And uh, they see, lo and behold, they don't just work in a community kitchen. They ask, what can our community do so it doesn't need community kitchens anymore? And uh, that's uh, how democracy works. Uh, it doesn't work by just sitting around uh, complaining about politicians. I've worked with uh, politicians in 
city, state, national, international, and overwhelmingly I found them dedicated, hardworking, caring people who are devoting their life to working hard. So for example, when I was dean of the law school at Stanford, I, one of my jobs was to look out over the horizon and see where, uh, where is the legal profession going and what are the challenges it's going to face. And I realized, because uh, I didn't know it before, that a huge share, some 30, 40 million poor people had no access to legal services at all. And so when uh, they faced eviction or they didn't get their social security check, well, it might have been an annoyance for somebody else, for a poor person, it was disaster. And I felt I needed, to, if I could find the chance to go help that uh, problem be minimized, not go away, but minimized, eased, uh, I'd want to do that. And I was lucky enough uh, that just then the program that had been under President Johnson, the War Against Poverty, had become an independent federal agency called the Legal Services Corporation. And I was lucky enough to be chosen, but I, I went after the job. I didn't just wait for it. I went after the job, as I have in a number of jobs. Uh, and I haven't been chosen for a number of jobs, but that one I was lucky to be chosen for. And that was, uh, I was the first employee there, and just starting a whole uh, new venture, a kind of entrepreneurial venture uh, called the Legal Services Corporation, was a thrill. And we found, I uh, learned a lot of lessons in that that I could apply for my success at my subsequent jobs. And in the process, had great satisfaction. Yeah, I dig it. Same with you, Ernstein. You do believe that even just the, the smallest act of giving back is something that, you know, we all should probably take a little more time to consider. Absolutely. And Joseph, as you very well know, freedom isn't free. And if you just think about the JFK quote, what you can do. Um, for your country, not just what your country can do for you. And um, just really thinking about um, anything ranging from like just thinking about the sacrifices that public service members, military member members, veterans have made to promote American values is nothing less than our goal. And how can we continue to help and add value to our community as well? Yeah. How do you all see that, Ernestine, maybe particularly for you on the venture side? How have you kept that, you know, maybe top of mind? Is it just particularly the industries you're looking at to invest in? Or do you find also it's, I don't know, the way the team ticks inside? Like, what are the things you look for that kind of have that fabric that you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Uh, well, a couple uh, different aspects is, uh, one you had noted, I've been building a venture fund called Brave Capital. I also co-founded an investment group called Milvet Angels, where in 2021 assembled a group of military veterans, military spouses, public service leaders to invest in startups. And the group started with a few friends who were former US Navy SEALs, Army Delta Force operators, a lot of folks who have served with my husband when he was a Navy SEAL for over a decade. And after their time in service, these friends have since gone on to do incredible things, whether it's consulting for Hollywood, working in finance, starting their own businesses. And the group has then expanded to also include other public service leaders like the NASA astronaut or the assistant sec dev. Um, 
but one common thread of the group um, has been its incredible individuals and families who have made the sacrifice to serve our country, dedicate their lives and careers to public service. And they're the very people who allow our innovation economy to thrive in in the first place. Um, so even when I look at founders these days, um, the thing that I find interesting is that I fundamentally believe the best and most successful founders want to change the world. There's some burning problem in the world that they're looking to address and solve, and they believe that technology can be used to solve that big problem. And obviously in the mission to solve some of the world's biggest problems, and as they're building their businesses, they'll make a lot of money for their investors. Um, but uh, that is something that I look for in founders and the companies I back. And then um, aside from that, I realize there's a few areas that um, Brave Capital has particular strength in and um, sectors that we're especially excited to back have this thesis around what I call investing in decisive technology. So use decisive technology as a term to describe new novel frontier technologies that did not exist five years ago, but are about to go from R&D to commercialization. I'm really excited to apply decisive technology to build our nation's critical infrastructure. Um, these are sort of the essential supports of a sustainable, productive society. And um, what that means these days is very focused on companies in big data, um, security, national security, and transportation. Yeah, no, I dig it. Is, is this something, and I'm curious, like, Tom, when you think about all the, the cutting edge stuff that Ernestine's working on and, and how you've seen that, do you see, does that give you, in the, in the years of experience you've had, does that give you a hope about the future and folks not losing that commitment to public service and just how important it is, even if it isn't in the traditional sense of serving in the federal government, do you see that promise still very strong in this country? I do. Uh, and I've uh, had the good fortune to be uh, surrounded by young people in my various roles at uh, Stanford University, Pennsylvania, and Indiana University, uh, surrounded by young people, and uh, definitely feel, yes, one of my uh, undergraduate professors wrote a, uh, a book about American politics over the years, Samuel Huntington was his name, and uh, he says at the end of it, uh, some say American democracy is a failure, and many do say that right now. But he went on to say, it's not a failure, it's a disappointment. But being a disappointment also means there's hope. And I very strongly feel there's a lot of hope, particularly in younger generations. In many ways, my generation screwed it up pretty badly. But I have a lot of hope about the new one. And it's, uh, it's really a source of pride and pleasure to work with someone. Time. When you were looking in your early days, when you got when you got into the profession of law, was that something that you initially thought was the way to get into public service, or were you doing it for very different reasons? And life kind of took you, uh, you know, took you down its own path. Well, I um, wanted to be a teacher since the second grade. My uh, student uh, in the second grade, I was. Uh, my teacher was named Mrs. Scattergood. Now that's a wonderful name, isn't it, Scattergood? And I came home calling my mother Mrs. Scattergood once and she had a fit. But uh, I knew from an early age I wanted to be a teacher and then fortunately had a grandmother who let me come to lunch almost every week and she'd give me a book and I'd read it. And then uh, one of those books was a biography of Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. And I was blown away at what he had done in terms of 
public service broadly defined, both in and out of government. And uh, I said, if, anything, if I could do anything like that, and he, of course, had a law background, so I decided I better go to law school and try to be a law teacher. But I always had the mind, uh, the hope of trying to do some of the time teaching, uh, some of the time being in government. I didn't quite realize I would be a university administrator too, but that was a different way in which I could uh, engage in what I call institutional architecture to build an institution that would help prepare young people for the challenges that uh, they face. And certainly we face plenty of those challenges right now. But yes, I am uh, uh, very hopeful that our democracy will hold together thanks to that generation. What do y'all, I would curious to see, you, you both have spent so much time in levels of, or in institutions of higher level education. I mean, both reaching the top on your education, you know, kind of merit badge, so to speak, of attaining. What have y'all seen that continues to be the strong value of higher ed? You know, there's a lot of conversations one way or another about the value of it. Does one need it? Does not, not need it? Depends on your career, all these other kinds of things. I'm just wondering more personally to you both, how have you seen higher ed serve or not serve you in the in the ways in which you're currently you know living your life and as you look back on it? Well, um, for myself, I only finished the PhD because one, my husband was working on his MBA and studying every weekend, and that encouraged me to also study in the library and the labs on weekends. And then two, my advisor for the PhD had invested significant time and funds in mentoring me, giving me the resources to conduct my research and felt a sense of personal responsibility to him and others in my network that were supporting me and just wanted to finish um, strong with the PhD. Um, so I think Tom will have probably some different perspectives on that, but um, that's, um, that's, that's how I ended up finishing the PhD in the end. Yeah, quite a few other uh, incredible feats along the way, too, before the PhD was over. Uh, and I just, just I was on the sidelines in awe of all the things that, Ernestine, you managed to do as you were getting your PhD, both all of which seemed full-time jobs along with a full-time work on the PhD. Uh, Obviously, uh, many students uh, and their parents uh, think of college primarily as a, a way to get a job. And it is. There's no question that uh, now, and it's more now than it was 20 years ago, and it's going to be more 20 years from now than it was, uh, higher education is increasingly important to get a interesting, useful job that's not just uh, serving until uh, the clock runs out at five o'clock and you go home, but rather something you enjoy, you learn from, you gain from, uh, as well as contribute to. So that's an important part, no question about it. But it's also uh, an least equally important uh, for those who want a life well lived to have a college education so that it, you learn how to learn and keep on learning. Uh, I think, well, I can always learn later on. Well, actually, you can't without some structures, some insights, uh, some ways in which you can 
put tough problems into theoretical frames and resolve those problems uh, in your personal life, in your business life, in your civic life. Uh, and college can help you do that. It can help you network uh, in ways that won't be possible otherwise. Um, they even help you find your spouse as it did for me. Uh, but that isn't uh, it. Uh, in my view, you cannot uh, undersell notion that it is a way as one trans is in transition, whether it's from adolescence to adulthood, which is true for a significant share, or older, part-time working uh, with families who say, I want to get ahead not only vocationally, but in terms of my life and my ability to learn. So I'm, a, as you gathered, a big booster of education. And then I think, and I think the best education can integrate sorry, mm -hmm. vocational education with education in a larger palette. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, I was just going to add that in general, I think it helps to provide broader perspectives and to meet teachers and students of different backgrounds. And it's how I ended up connecting with this individual named Chuck Heasley, who's an entrepreneurship professor at Stanford. And um, he's been able to teach entrepreneurship all around the world and um, has really instilled in me as well the importance of learning as well. Um, and he's part of our team at Brave Capital as well and just the opportunity to meet incredible individuals like Tom, like Chuck and, and others. Yeah, it's almost like you need a course. As I reflect back on my time, you know, the in school and then getting my master's and kind of looking at what that looks like, I've always wondered, like, I almost needed a course in how to fully experience an educational endeavor, you know, and I think I hear both of you both talking about not just going to a class and listening to the curriculum and then doing the homework and doing the test. But it was also the relationships you made with the staff, the faculty, the people that went through it, the time outside of the classroom that seemed as powerful that I think Tom is talking about where, you know, you wouldn't have necessarily gotten that nutrient rich environment just on your own. You know, you got this really cool opportunity to extract that. But I think oftentimes we don't learn those things to, you know, in earnest and you're bringing these folks and you're putting them on your roster of, you know, teammates. And that's not something that I think always strikes folks as a reason why an education or why going to these high institutions of higher ed can be powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably, do you feel like that's something that, um, that you were fortunate to like organically figure out that the people and the, the things that make up this system is really the superpower of the education? Or was that something that y'all got told early in your, in your time that, Hey, don't forget that the people are probably the most important piece. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely think uh, people are the most important piece. And um, it, Joseph, as you're saying this, Tom, I also remember when you were setting up Legal Services Corporation and you had to fight for certain individuals to keep them on your team, just individuals that you wanted to work with. And um, uh, I don't know if you want to share that story, but um, as Joseph's asking this question, that, that immediately comes to mind. Well, um... I, I will tell that story, but uh, I do underscore another dimension first, which is uh, the opportunity to meet and work with and care about people who aren't like you. Uh, there are really only two places where that happens very well in my, well, there are more, but the two ones that I know best, uh, the armed forces, all of a sudden, most who've been in the armed forces are with a whole lot of 
in my experience, guys, because they're all guys, uh, who come from all sorts of different backgrounds. And they reflect the country. Uh, and similarly, if you're in a university, chances are you'll be with uh, learning with a whole lot of students who don't look like you and some of them don't act like you. And you know, over time, these are terrific people. And I may have had a stereotype of what somebody whose skin color was different or his religion was different or some other dimension of them was different than my little background as I grew up wherever. Uh, but they're pretty good. Uh, some of them are better than me. Uh, so it's a real lesson that uh, is hard to get uh, otherwise, and it's a, an important one. The value that um, Ernest E. was looking, pointing out too, though, is as you go through college and I think go through life, having a moral compass to guide you is really important. And trying to think as best you can with the help of parents and others of what your moral values are. Uh, and my own test of that in terms of the Legal Services Corporation was I was chosen to head this organization that had come from Lyndon Johnson's War Against Poverty, but was a separate organization now. Uh, there was a Republican administration. I had been a lifetime card-carrying Democrat. Uh, but I had also been outside of the legal services world when I was chosen, and that's what a pretty conservative board wanted. And I knew I was given the chance to choose whomever I wanted to for my entire staff, and I knew that I needed as an executive vice president someone from who had gone through all the struggles of legal services, had been a legal services lawyer himself, had. Um, and knew the inside and knew uh, that those who have been working there were pretty despondent now because there was an administration uh, that wasn't very supportive, to put it gently. Uh, so I asked my friend, whose name was Clint Bamberger, uh, to be the executive vice president, and he agreed. And uh, we went to a board meeting where uh, the formality was supposed to be that the board would meet briefly, approve our uh, appointments, and then we'd have a huge uh, party to welcome, uh, particularly for people in Congress and elsewhere in the government who would be key to supporting what we were trying to do. Well, uh, the board met for what I thought was going to be 15 minutes, and it was an hour, and then two hours, and three hours, and finally the board chairman came up and said, they're split. Uh, five uh, board members, uh, are supporting your stamp, but five say that unless you uh, say you'll not insist on Bamberger as your partner, uh, they don't want you. And uh, so I hope you'll decide that you don't have to have Bamberger, you'll have somebody else. And that was one of the moral decisions that I had to face because it meant, but I really knew then that uh, I'd given my word to him that I wanted him as vice president. And indeed, I thought that was the best way by far I could do the job. So I said, I'll be glad to help you find somebody else, but I can't do it. Uh, I had at that time left being dean in the law school. I had rented a house. I had moved our family to Washington. So it was uh, 
it would have been a difficult, to put it mildly, if uh, to just to walk away. But it seemed the right thing to do, and it still does. And over the years, I've had other kinds of decisions like that where it's really useful to have your own moral compass at hand. Yeah, no, I can see that. It is. I think having that principle there, whatever it might be, just those principles in your gut to be able to drive decisions and to y'all's point about being in this environment where you have that diversity of thought, great to learn perspectives. At the same time, it's also good to be reminded of like where you're grounded in and, and how you move forward with those experiences. As you both have endured your, you know, your respective professions, you know, maybe we start with Ernestine on this one here. Like as you're looking at the venture world and, and how you got into it, what are the things that, as you look back on how you started, Ernestine, because I know when we were catching up and getting to know each other, you had said, you know, I never thought in a million years, really, I never, it was, was not what I intended to do. Um, how do you think the education that you did have helps you either have an advantage or just a different perspective about maybe how you look at venture or how you look at new types of investments that maybe somebody who grew up in it or always intended to be in VC would not necessarily have? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, so I ended up, um, shortly after I met Tom, I ended up meeting the first CEO of Incutel and that was my lucky break into venture. So Incutel is the venture fund for the U S intelligence community. And I was just really inspired hearing about the work Incutel was doing. They've backed for instance, 3d imaging technology that those tools have since been deployed during the Iraq war to support U S troops. Like my husband, Gene, like many of your friends, Joseph as well. And this first CEO of Incutel was just a few years into starting an institutional venture fund called ALP, and I was incredibly excited by the talent and passion of um, the team behind it. Ended up getting a chance to join the firm, and this was initially while finishing my undergrad studies at Stanford. Had no intentions of going into venture, so I started as a part-time associate, and I've since been a venture partner at the firm while also building um, Brave Capital. And when it goes to um, educational experience, I think probably one of the most difficult, eye-opening um, educational experiences in my 20s was being assigned to help some companies in ALP's venture portfolio that weren't doing so well. And these were companies that were pretty much about to go under. My job was to figure out how to get at least a 1x for investors. So basically like making lemonade out of lemons sort of thing. Um, so um, just just to add a little bit more color to that, um, there's been several times where I had to encounter um, and support a startup that was close to running out of capital. Um, there was a chance that they weren't able to make payroll in a few months. And um, this, this actually surprisingly happens more often than not because early stage startups are often focused on building the product um, rather than selling the product. Or um, in the case of consumer-oriented companies, they're often focused on growing their user base first before turning towards monetization. And um, having those sorts of, um, call it educational experiences, where like I remember there was one sleepless week that was the week before a friend's wedding, and I had to figure out how to close a sales contract in order to give the company a few more months from runway. And I had been working on this customer for several weeks and had multiple meetings with um, top decision makers at the customer's company. And it was the day before the wedding reception and I had to pull an all-nighter with the product team to finish the demo build and finally be able to present that to the customer that they then bought it. And that one deal ended up allowing the startup to make payroll, but also gave the startup credibility that 
allowed us to land additional sales contracts with other partners and customers. We basically went from the brink of shutting down to having long-term long sort of like sustainable revenue and growth or just like other um, sort of um, educational experiences where um, I can think of this one instance where I had to work with a CEO and um, um, navigate a CEO transition. And it was this incredibly challenging period because growth had slowed down, um, revenue had begun to plateau, the team was shrinking due to layoffs and low attrition, and um, a lot of investors as well as the CEO had just given up on the company. And the remaining leadership team and I had to just figure out how to be lean, refocus, get the startup back on track financially. And um, at the same time, um, also how to maintain or or rather elevate the core team's morale and commitment to the product, um, really push forward um, to what ended up becoming a good exit. Um, but I think um, that was probably the most eye-opening um, experience and uh, early on in my career and just figuring out how to roll up your sleeves and help struggling companies in the portfolio, um, meeting their needs where they are. And um, it's, it's an experience that um, I encourage a lot of individuals um, to take when they ask me what it takes to be a VC and um, the experience of helping struggling companies since, as you know, 99% of startups don't have successful exits. And then also just learning the most from these sorts of challenges and failures rather than when everything's great and rosy. Um, those were definitely um, very informative experiences for me. As a quick follow-up on that, Ernestine, are you kind of, is it, uh, am I kind of picking this up that you like, there was no, uh, you kind of had to, there's no like playbook on how this works. A lot of the times you just kind of have to get into the muck and just figure it out yourself. And anybody mm -hmm. who would tell you from the outside that you need a particular pedigree or classes or whatever to be really effective VC, for example, you'd kind of throw caution on that. I agree. Venture is very much an apprenticeship business. You learn from seeing more deals, more companies. And I think that's the case for a lot of other opportunities we have in, in the private sector as well. Tom, on the law side of the house, anything similar, like or even on the education side, you spent time in, in multiple universities building programs. And are there things that you've, you know, you would say, uh, there was no class that taught me this, but this was something I just kind of had to figure out. And had I not just had the right commitment towards it, you know, I just don't know that you would have figured out any other way. Well, I did learn uh, from leading Stanford Law School, then from the uh, Legal Services Corporation, which I mentioned, um, to uh, an organization called the uh, International Development Cooperation Agency, where I was another new startup, like the Legal Services Corporation. Uh, uh, this time, the president, working directly for President Carter, who believed passionately, as I do, that our foreign aid should be focused on long-term economic development and human rights and not scattered uh, just to serve some uh, secondary foreign policy interest. Uh, and then uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, Indiana, and actually a couple of uh, nonprofit organizations I helped to start, which also focus on uh, encouraging young people to be involved in uh, community and public service, that there are some key lessons uh, for a leader. Uh, I think 
trying to be as sure as you can in the organization, and it's true in government, but it's true in higher education, that the whole is more than the sum of the parts, making everybody realize that even though they're in the school of engineering or law or some other, they're part of a whole university. And similarly, if they're in uh, the Agency for International Development, AID, which was uh, reported to me, uh, they're part of a larger picture. And um, uh, what that larger picture is and how to frame it in a way that they feel ennobled by it, but rather than just competing with other parts of the institution, which is unfortunately too often the case. It's no less important in my view to, uh, uh, as a leader, to pick two or three big things you can do at once. Too many leaders in my experience say, well, uh, I've now listened for six months. It's very important at the start of any organization. And I've heard, I've got a list now of 26 things I just got to do simultaneously. Well, that's a formula for disaster. Uh, you're not going to get any of them done. I over, that's uh, at least uh, my prediction. But if you take two or three really big things and focus on those. So in legal services, for example, we started with uh, a budget that had been frozen uh, under the Nixon administration for years. And uh, we knew one of those two or three big things had to be increased. Increasing. What we didn't know is how best to explain uh, the need in a way that would capture the interest and imagination of those in the House of Representatives and the Senate. And we spent a very intensive weekend trying to think, uh, what's the best way to make the case? And uh, good fortune, it wasn't my uh, idea originally, we came up with what we call the minimum access plan. We said that today in the United States, there are an average of 11 lawyers per 10,000 uh, people, 11. Uh, for poor people, uh, it's one or less. All we want is minimum access, and that meant two lawyers per 10,000 poor people. And we went, to, I went to visit every congressperson's office who had anything to do with uh, legal services and said, uh, essentially, if you don't want blood in the streets, you're going to have to have minimum access to justice for poor people. Otherwise, they're going to rise up and do bad things. And somehow that uh, notion uh, took hold. And I learned from that in other ways to try to find a way in which you can take hold of one big thing you really want to change. At the same time, you have to be sure that everybody who works with and for you knows what those two or three big things are and knows that you'll support them, but only to supporting what you're trying to do. And that seemed to me to work well in both higher education, government, and in the nonprofit sectors that uh, I've been involved with. When you all think about, it, you know, the, the lessons you all learning are just kind of by doing, right? Like you have to do that. You have to understand people and then you have to kind of get into it. 
imagine somebody right now listening to this is probably has their own personal example or some idea they have about pursuing what advice would y'all give individually to folks that are sitting out there that are either seasoned professionals been doing their industry you know for a long time uh, or maybe just brand new right they're, they're in school right now and they're looking about how do i how do i spend more time kind of helping you know, strengthen the fabric of America, right? How do I help add to the public service? What would you say are some good initial steps if it isn't a full-blown, like, you know, go to DC or go work in your local government type job, but maybe they get to keep doing what they're doing. What would you say are some really good steps to kind of start looking at ways that they can contribute that start to at least give you some at-bats to what it's actually like to, to be a part of building that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, just one day at a time, um, small improvements every day to help and inspire others. This is a big part of the book that um, Tom and I wrote. Tom, do you want to share more on that? Uh, you just walk through your community and see what you wish looked better. Uh, what problem do you see that maybe it's homeless? Um, uh, maybe it's inadequate uh, access to the internet or some piece that you wish your community uh, had better. And then uh, either yourself or ideally finding a few people who, who uh, feel similarly and go out and do something about it. Uh, if you come to your elected representatives and say this is our top priority and you've got enough people behind it, chances are they're going to pay attention to you. Um, and um, I remember when I was president of Indiana University, uh, I had budget proposals um, for the university, and in that case we were talking about billions of dollars, uh, not the smaller amounts that I've also focused on. Uh, but the head of the budget committee said, uh, you're a good fellow, Tom, but it, when I hear this from my constituents, constituents, I'm going to pay attention. So remember you're a constituent and uh, say not just my complaining about um, uh, the water supply here, I'm going to do something. and. Take a step. There are always things that you can do to make it better. It may not solve everything, but it certainly can make it better. And it's only going to happen if you do it. You and ideally some friends who work with you. And if you do, you will get, I think, I certainly have, and others I know, tremendous satisfaction of saying, why? My community is a little different now, a little better because what I did. Yeah. That's worth it. Worth a lot. And to your point, definitely agree. Yeah, you have to get a taste of it, right? Otherwise, it's hard to see if it matters, you know. But I do think that that's absolutely the logic that goes through most of our minds, which is really, is picking up this one piece of trash going to make a difference? Like, does that really make a difference at all? What you don't always realize is that the act of doing that inspires two other three other people who are watching you do that and then that creates some effect there that allows more of the momentum to be created which is really neat but again we always go eh, i don't know if this one piece of trash even matters so i love that 
I'm a trash picker upper. I yeah, me too. Tell you I am too. I have a big trash picker upper and shopping carts. I don't understand why the rogue shopping cart in the in the it bothers me. It's like a peeve. Like just go put it back in the thing, right? Like it doesn't take that much time to go put the cart back. And so I think it should be extreme punishments for people who just let the cart dangle. You know, just to feel bad for those young folks, like trying to push the you know the things back into it, but. Uh, Y'all have been in, uh, so incredible with the time today. I, uh, as we're coming to a close on it, I do want to ask a question for both of y'all that we end every show with and we ask every guest with. It's particularly, I, I find that folks who are, uh, who've had a career and are continuing to have a career um, where they've really done some meaningful things, there seems to always be some bass drum or some, some North Star. You know, for us on our team, you know, our, our North Star and the way we treat people, the way we decide to make decisions, how we decide to kind of guide our decisions, our values are curiosity above judgment, courage above all. That's just kind of what drives us. That's our North Star. And I find that individuals typically have that North Star. Would you all mind kind of sharing the thing that is your guiding light as you've made decisions in the past and as you even continue to live today? Go for it, Ernestine. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, my North Star has to do with just creating a life worth living in, doing that by making a positive impact on society. Um, one thing that I'm very excited about that I've shared briefly is just technology and just um, technology companies um, that are able to have that broad societal impact and how um, this sort of impact that we can have. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking of like a couple uh, recent examples of technology being used to improve our lives and make the world a better place. Um, my PhD was focused on autonomous vehicles. Um, two companies that I backed in the space um, have built companies, um, full stack autonomous vehicle solutions. And if you just think of that an as an example where long-term the work that they're doing can reduce traffic accidents because autonomous vehicles are not susceptible to human error and human error is this major factor in traffic accidents. Um, also autonomous vehicles can provide transportation for people who are unable to drive themselves. Or for instance, one of my colleagues started an education platform and just um, that being able to leverage technology to expand access to education and make it possible for people to learn from top universities, top instructors all around the world, regardless of their location or income level and just being able to level the playing field for that. Um, at the same time, like, of course, um, I would be remiss if I didn't note that technology um, is a tool and like any tool it can be used for good or for bad. And it's still up to us to use technology responsibly and ethically and just being mindful of the potential negative impacts as well. Um, but really it's at the end of the day, just um, how do you think about using your skill sets and being able to create a positive impact on society? I dig it. Tom, how about you? Um, as a preface to that, I say that uh, in my experience, many talk about helping others uh, in various ways as, quote, giving back. And I frankly think it's a mistake to think of things uh, that you're doing for others in terms of giving back. Uh, because over and over again, I have gotten such satisfaction out of helping others, doing work with others, making others' lives perhaps a little better in students and in foreign aid and legal services and elsewhere, that I'm not giving back, I'm getting. I'm getting a sense of real lasting satisfaction. 
And so my North Star is gratitude. It's gratitude that here I am, 89 years old, and I have the pleasure of going on learning. I'm in education, and all of a sudden, a whole new world uh, has opened up in artificial intelligence. And thanks to Ernestine and some others, I get to be tutored in it. I learn things, uh, and I love to learn. Uh, and I want to keep on learning as long as I'm vertical. And I am grateful, and I say literally every day, thank you. Thank you for giving me uh, the chance to go on uh, doing that, and uh, what a lucky fellow I am. That's awesome, Tom. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on. Thank you all both so much for your time today. It was incredible talking to you both. It's cool to see the chemistry you both have together. And there's no doubt, Tom, even at 89, I know you got ton like tons of time to go crush more things and Ernestine I know you got a ton of momentum with what you're doing with your team so thank you both for your gracious time here to share with us and talk a little bit about public service and maybe not giving back but how do we get by giving so this is really great thank you so much my pleasure thanks for having us Joseph well, thank you all for listening this is the professionally offensive podcast you can catch us on all platforms JC out